as we look to our Lord together in prayer. And Father, as we're coming into your presence now, we're coming into your presence well aware of who we are, wanting to make sure we understand who you are, and asking that there is a sense of connectedness between you and us. We're at the cross of Jesus Christ. It's where we repent of our sins. It's where we've placed faith in the one who died in our place and three days later was raised from the dead. It's our gravitational point. It's where we're drawn. It's where life makes sense. And it's where salvation is secured. And Father, in each of these services, we pray that you speak at points of need. We've got such points of need in this congregation. As John had mentioned, we continue to pray for Kobe. We love him and the family as a whole and each of the members of the family and praying for your Holy Spirit to be working in that hospital room right now. Such a wide range of needs in this congregation. We also know that typically on this Sunday in March and the following Sunday as well, spring break, for many, not all, a lot of travel impacting a lot of families of this congregation. Take them from A to B to C safely and bring them back safely, we pray. Pour your spirit upon those away and those that are here. Father, in some ways, we look at this passage of Scripture and there's a spiritual sense those away and those near. We want to be able to understand how all that fits together. So, Father, in these minutes, you give us to be together with our eyes fixated upon your word, looking through it to you. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. The corner of my desk is an old hourglass. Used so often in ships of prior times, it's an antiquated timing instrument. Consists of two chambers, an upper chamber and a lower chamber. And they're connected vertically by a narrow passageway. And when it's flipped over, you watch the sands of time emerge as they make their way from the upper chamber to the lower chamber. It's a reminder to me that with these two chambers, a narrow passageway, that as sands drain from the upper to the lower chambers, There's a real sense that there is such a thing as the sands of time, as Longfellow put it. And the Apostle John, in his latter years, is grappling with that fact of the relationship of time with eternity. 
when he says children, it's the last hour. Children. Children are the measure of time, aren't they? Time continues. As I ponder that hourglass and the sands of time drain themselves from the upper to the lower chambers, as an apostle, John processes what's happening. As he's saying, it's the last hour. What I want to do with you this morning as we continue in this first John series that we began at the start of the year is to now draw out three significant perspectives for last hour people. For people that understand that the sands of time are draining from the upper to the lower chamber. And want to be able to understand how do I live my life in light of this? How do I raise children in light of this? How do I navigate my singleness in light of this? And on and on and on. Three significant perspectives for last hour people found in these verses. And the first comes out of verse 18. We're going to put it this way. The number one, with a last hour perspective, I want you to note with me the Antichrist explained here. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard it, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Notice how he closes the loop on this. He begins verse 18, it is the last hour. He ends verse 18, we know that it is the last hour. He's speaking here with certainty. But now we've got to break this down and think this through. Now, he loves to refer to the people that he writes to as children, which is understandable. He's in his latter 80s, maybe even early 90s. He has seen a lot, experienced a lot. But what rivets his attention is the fact that in that upper room where so much of life gets explained, where Jesus is ministering to his disciples prior to his death and resurrection, he refers to his disciples as little children. And the Greek word that's used here pertains to a particular child. The Greek word paideia has to do with a child who is under authority or supervision. And so you are under authority. We are under supervision, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. For those that view themselves and realize we are last hour people, this is significant. Because children have a way of being the measure of time. Children, it's the last hour. Now, John is very time-conscious in his five books. It was the wedding in Cana, you see, where on the third day, there's irony, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, and Jesus said to her, woman, 
What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. As John was processing what was taking place in that wedding of Cana, Galilee, and what does Jesus mean by saying, my hour has not yet come, as he now writes, children, it is the last hour. Now, the last hour pertains to that entire period from the point of Christ's first coming. So for John, as he writes to his audience at this point, he's writing to last hour people. And as you and I in 2017 are processing his thoughts, we are living as last hour people. But what we've got to understand that is in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. That God is sovereign over time. And as someone who understood last hour living... John now begins to group some thoughts together and says, children, the word again used for someone who is under authority, under supervision, under lordship. It's the last hour. In other words, Messiah has come. First coming. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, hold that thought, bridge it, So now many antichrists have come. Now, for those that have been here since 2015 and are able to track, and if not, you can certainly pick it up on our internet, on our archives, our webpage. In 2015, we analyzed the subject of antichrist as it relates to the antichrist. In January, January 11th, 2015, where we studied Daniel chapter 11, going through the book of Daniel. In 2016, in February, we were working through 2 Thessalonians, and we analyzed Antichrist, plural, as it relates to Antichrist, singular. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2016, February. We're making our way because now we're in March, and here we're at it again, 2017. And now the Apostle John is grouping together thoughts and ideas for last hour lifestyle, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And now you look at this, and you're pondering what Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And now he's talking here about Antichrist plural and Antichrist singular, and how are you and I supposed to understand all this stuff? In Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 15, one of the pivotal verses in the entire scope of the Scriptures, a pronouncement is being made that has eternal consequences, where time and eternity collide, where God makes this statement to the evil one, I will put enmity between you and the woman, are between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, the evil one has offspring. Now, if you have a New American Standard Bible or utilize the King James, 
you'll notice that the word is seed. God is so masterful of language that you and I would recognize that the word seed could either refer to that which is singular or that which is plural. In other words, with that one collective word, when it comes to the seed of the evil one, it could refer to the collective, plural, antichrist, or the singular, the antichrist. He is so brilliant in his usage of language that he is now collectively, with that one word, preps people for antichrists that are harbingers, precursors, forerunners of the antichrist. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And he's already referencing analogically the cross of Jesus Christ. And so now what the Apostle John is saying is that if you begin to track throughout history, you know that many antichrists have come. Now, You pull that together and you realize then that there is in the line of evil an entire seed, a continual counterfeit seed leading to the final seed he refers to as the Antichrist and a genuine seed that makes its way generation through generation leading to the final seed Jesus Christ. So we're not surprised then, are we, that immediately in the next generation, Cain kills Abel. Because what was happening at that point was that the evil was attempting to thwart the promise line of delivering Jesus Christ. But God is sovereign over the lines, and so he brings about Seth. And we move onward. Until you get to the point where in Genesis chapter 12, you find that the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, or the word seed, I'll give this land. It can be used singular, it can be used plural, singular for Abraham or plural for all of Abraham's descendants and Jesus is of the line of Abraham. So you've got a genuine, you've got a counterfeit line that is continuously in conflict and so we're not surprised in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh attempts to kill off babies where he feels so incredibly threatened by what is occurring in the growth of the population of the Jewish people. And you see the corollary in the Newer Testament when Herod feels so threatened, he kills off the babies because he is so worried about this one born king of the Jews. And in between, you will find Haman in the book of Esther, which we will be getting to next, who has a way of trying to pull out a political strategy of annihilating the Jews. 
until God oversees, breaks in, and sovereignly preserves the line that leads to Jesus. And so through it all, what you find are two what I will call seed lines that take into account what we might describe as a corporate solidarity between the singular and the plural, where all the plural antichrists lead to the ultimate antichrist, and all the plural sons of David lead to the ultimate son of David, who as he entered into Jerusalem would hear the cries out in the streets, singing hallelujah to the one who is the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, you see. Now the wise person then who's studying in last hour thinking is processing, how can I distinguish between genuine and counterfeit? Which is a burden for John as he writes. There's a story about Gustav de Ray. He was an artist, and he was traveling from one country to another through Europe, and he, he lost what we would call our passport, which was required to be able to get from one through country to the next. And so he was stressed one day about, how do I get past the border? And said, he said to the authorities at the border, sorry, I've lost my passport. I hope you'll be able to let me pass through. All I can say is I'm the artist de Ray. The biographer says that Doray heard these words, you can't deceive us. Lots of people try to pass through claiming to be someone else. And when I was reading that portion of the biography, I wrote in First John, chapter 2. Because the biographer goes on to say that as DeRay began to argue that he was, in fact, the real one, the officer finally said, we'll see. Take this paper, pencil, sketch that group of people over there out in the field. And we're told, and I'm quoting now, it took but a few minutes for the great artist to make the picture, and in such masterly manner was it done that the officer was at once convinced and let him through. He recognized he was genuine. Now, last our people are developing through the study of God's word the capacity to be able to distinguish between the counterfeit and the genuine and understand that God masterfully used the Hebrew word in Genesis 3.15, whether it's in your translation seed or the translation I'm using here, offspring, it can constitute whether it be a singular person or a group of people leading towards a singular person. We've got the line of David, so generation by generation. We have Davidic kings leading to the ultimate son of David. And we've got the line, you see from Genesis 3.15, the evil one that's attempting to counterfeit the authentic line, leading to the point where Herod himself is trying to put to death the authentic. And all of it comes together at the cross of Jesus Christ, you see. And so now, John writes at the end of verse 18, as he loops all of this together, therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 
Now, John loves the word know, and he wants to make absolutely certain that you've grasped the significance of it because in the second chapter, in verse 3, he had said, and by this we know that we have come to know him. In other words, you can know that you know him. He's giving people assurance in last hour living. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have come to know him. Not merely know him informationally. To know him personally as your Savior. As your Lord. You can know that you can know him. And so at the end here of this verse, therefore we know that it is the last hour... And so I'm looking then at that hourglass, which is draining right now on my desk in my office as the sands of time are draining themselves from the upper to the lower chamber of the hourglass of life. And as Longfellow in his Psalm of Life put it in the seventh stanza, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing leave it behind us footprints on the sand of time. So now John is processing footprints generation by generation by generation. And they're grappling with the significance of what this is all about. It's the last hour. Hey, did you go to sleep at halftime during the Super Bowl? Now, New England Patriot fans didn't, because New England Patriot fans know that Bilicek and Brady are masters of the clock, and there's still a second half to be played. And so even though at halftime it looked like Atlanta had it, there is something about the strategies being put together by those who are described by analysts as masters of the clock. And so we shouldn't be shocked at the very end what the outcome was. Now what you and I see here then is that when Jesus Christ said in John chapter 2, my hour has not yet come, that just because the hour had not yet come, that he was not therefore master of the clock. There was still more sand in the hourglass as the upper chamber is draining itself and the lower chamber is receiving the sands of time at this point. And we're pondering the significance that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And now we begin to think about children and that God deliberately, through John's writings, uses a Greek word here, paideia, pertaining to the kind of child who is still who is under lordship, under authority, under guardianship. And we think of ourselves that we, if we are under the lordship of Jesus Christ, children, as he writes in the latter days of his own life. It's the last hour. First coming has happened. Sands of time are draining themselves. As you've heard that Antichrist is coming, notice how he bridges time, future and past. 
So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour, and you've looped hours together, you see. And you've taken it back to what Jesus said at that wedding. And now with a last hour perspective, you connect now the dots. The Antichrist explained. And so you take the Daniel 11 exposition of 2015 in January of that year to the Second Thessalonians 2 exposition of February 2016 to now this exposition in March 2017. You connect the dots as well. You can ask one of the secretaries if you need to find the way to get to the, in the archives on the webpage to these expositions of each of these Antichrist-type studies. But out of this, then, with a last-hour perspective, you move from the Antichrist explained in 18 to, second of all, the apostasies exposed in verse 19. Now, God is masterful with language. I want you to notice now the prepositions of life. Find them in this verse. They went out from us. Mark that word. But they were not of us. Mark that word. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, you're beginning to spot a pattern here that what John is doing, not only is he contrasting the two lines that we noted with the incredible usage of one word seed or offspring in Genesis 3.15, but now he is also contrasting that line between of us, but no longer with us. You want to keep bridging between the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and the Revelation, the last book of the Bible given to John. Because in John chapter 6, verse 66, get this. After Jesus had given a very powerful teaching about eternal life, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were with him previously, but they were never of him. Judas is listening in. With us, of us, Tension. Is that true in your life experience as well? Do you have religious unbelievers in your circle of relationships? With us, question. But of us? So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? In John chapter 6, verse 68, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered him, did I not choose, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is of a devil. 
he spoke of Judas, who at that point was with them, but was not of them. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, right next to 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, you're going to want to put in then John chapter 6, verse 66, down through verse 71, and keep tracking. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, you see. And now you see the significant contrast here between the them and the us, the they and the us. And you've got to ask yourself at a very personal level, am I of him or merely with him? Am I truly of the church of Christ or merely with coexisting with the Church of Christ. It happened after a service where I had a number of pro, uh, former pro athletes in the congregation, and Ken, who sometimes would speak in my place on Sunday mornings because he had gone to divinity school, was also the backup quarter, quarterback to John Elway of the Denver Broncos at one point in his life. And Ken was telling a story, and he waved me over because he wanted me to hear this one. It was October, and it had been an incredibly rainy day, and it was muddy out on the football fields of life, I'll put it that way, because what had happened is that he had stopped on his way back to his home and was watching what you might and I might describe as simply peewee football. And these kids, they were just yay high, but they were decked out in their, in their helmets and their pads and their uniforms. But because it was raining and it was dark and it was muddy, you really couldn't distinguish one kid from the next and which team was which. And so lo and behold, when the offense went to a huddle, what Ken noticed was one of the defensive linemen made his way into the offensive huddle. Joined with the offense got the scoop of the play, and then went quickly back to the defensive alignment. And Ken is laughing on the sideline. He said, hey, Gare, with us, but not of us. Which is one of the first things we say to each other when we see each other. As we think back to the dynamics of life. Because life gets muddied. Life gets messy to the point you can't really tell who, what uniform the other person's wearing. And that's why then there is such spiritual camouflage that the Apostle John is attempting to make out, distinguish for people, and equip them through the Word of God to be able to process what's here. But there is something even more significant. You're still connecting the dots of John's gospel with John's epistle. Mark the wording, they went out. Notice again the phrase further on in verse 19, they went out. It appears twice in one verse. And now I want you to ponder the significance of 
this statement from the upper room of Jesus Christ. We're in John chapter 13, verse 21. Process this. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Think with us of us. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, and one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, that's the apostle John. Reclining at table at Jesus' side, Simon Peter motions to him to ask Jesus of whom he is speaking. And so that disciple, Apostle John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Watch the timing. When he had dipped the so he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the so after, not before, Jesus is Lord of the timing. After he had taken the so Satan entered him. Jesus is in complete control. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. In John chapter 13, verse 28, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought it's because Judas had the money bag and Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. And so after, not before, after receiving the morsel of bread, in other words, Jesus has just ID'd him. And Judas knows he's been ID'd. Listen to the wording. He immediately went out. In verse 19 of 1 John 2, how does it begin? They went out. Same Greek word. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's the perseverance of the saints, or what I prefer to call the preservation of the saints. God's sovereign hand upon his people. Notice the tension of with us, of us. But There it is again. They went out the same word to describe Judas when he left the upper room that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And you think about the dynamics of all this. Still as of old, men by themselves are priced. For 30 pieces, Judas sold himself, not Christ. Last hour people have a way of moving from the Genesis 3.15 promise strategy forward. 
processing why the continual onslaught and pogroms and, and attempts to annihilate the Jews connects the dots between the Pharaoh of old and the Herod of new, sees the collective of the singular and how the idea of seed could be both plural and singular, sees the lines and the convergence point, not shocked by the sons of David leading to the ultimate son of David, not shocked then by the strategy of the evil one who has seed, who generation by generation attempts to thwart the movement toward that cross, and three days later, the resurrection reality. They went out that it might become plain that they all, oh, John's really southern, the all, y'all, not of us. These are what you and I would call apostasies. It's where people abandon the faith that they had once professed. One does not abandon the faith that you and I possess. But if there is profession without possession, apostasies can occur. And so Judas looked apart. But then Judas leaves the room. He was with the twelve, but he was not of the twelve. And John now is disseminating these thoughts. And brilliantly, through his use of prepositions, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us as a peewee football player makes his way back from the huddle to the other side of the scrimmage line. It becomes increasingly difficult in this day and age to determine but who's offside. As the sands of time continue to drain themselves from the upper to the lower chambers. But there is good news. Because once you've worked through the Antichrist explained in verse 18 and the apostasies exposed in verse 19, notice thirdly that with a last hour perspective, note with me, the anointing experienced in 20 and 21. Now he's talking to those who are genuine. And there is something that distinguishes the genuine from the counterfeit. The genuine, those who are of us, versus the counterfeit, those who are merely with us. In verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. And y'all, this southern accent come through again, have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. And here's the deal. That word anointed there, Greek word for the Old Testament word, Messiah. In other words, you are ID'd with Christ. The Messiah. 
The word anointed in the Old Testament, think sons of David. David was anointed by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Then anointed as king of Judah in 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 4. Then anointed again as over all Israel as king in 2 Samuel 5 verse 3. David was called the Lord's anointed ten times. And no one's surprised when people are describing Jesus on that donkey entering into Jerusalem as the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the fact that the same title, Messiah and anointed, was used of prophets and priests and kings comes to its very powerful pivotal point in that messianic psalm psalm 45 your throne O god forever and ever that's everlasting life with an everlasting savior three days later raised from the dead the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness so it will be established for that one who upon the cross had king of the jews placed over his head You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you, Psalm 45, verse 7, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so beyond those who are with him is the anointing of the one we know as Jesus. You've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have this knowledge. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to the Word, teaching. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to each other, koinonia. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to God, worship. Where the Spirit reigns, believers relate to this world in the form of discipleship. And you pull all that together. And this anointing is the work of the Holy Spirit as you now ponder the anointing of what took place at the baptism when the dove descends upon Jesus, you see. And now you tie all this together. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. General Marshall discovered that men interviewed after battle are in such a state of shock they can only tell the truth. It's called group method. It was said that the average man cannot lie in the presence of his fellow soldiers who would contradict him if he were telling a lie haunted by the memory of those who had given their lives for the sake of others. He will not lie. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And as John, as we'll examine next week, would put it, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? As the sands are draining themselves from the upper to the lower chamber, there's a powerful moment, an incredible moment in John's writings where all of a sudden the Greeks appear on the scene after Jesus, after Jesus has spent time in the whole matter of the triumphant entry. And so they came to Philip, who was with Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. 
And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. My hour has not yet come, Jesus says. The hour has now come, Jesus says. Children, it's the last hour, writes John. As you ponder the two chambers of life, and as the sands of time are draining themselves from the upper to the lower chamber, there's such a narrow passageway. Are you processing that the temporal is not eternal? Have you so given yourself to the temporal that you've lost sight of the eternal? Or have you put your faith and trust in the one who in the fullness of time, sent by God, entered into this world to die for our sins, and three days later exposes us to the eternal? Let's stand together. In a short period of time, we have pondered the history of the Jews and the conflicts of this world, the us and they, the with us versus the of us, and the whole matter of assurance through the anointing of the Holy Spirit when we put our faith and trust in Jesus the Savior. We've been ID'd with Jesus. We've been ID'd as being of Jesus. And so, Father, may we take now the dynamics that are found in these verses, accept the fact that we are last hour people, grapple with the relationship of the temporal to the eternal, and make absolutely certain that we put our faith in the one who three days later was raised from the dead. We can now commit all these verses to our hearts, into our lives, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.